Hello and welcome. My name is Mark Blatstein, the physician founder of Physician Pre-Sentence Report Service. Today, I'm going to read an article that was published in the Federal Lawyer several years ago, two, two, two years ago about, that dealt with the critical nature of the pre-sentence report with a medical perspective. That is very important if you have medical issues, if you think you're going to have medical issues, and even if you don't have any, it's important to know what's available and how to deal with those issues. And I will provide commentary along the way. And I am was I am and was extremely grateful to have contributing with me co-authors, attorney Faye Spent, Jay Hurst, and retired prison warden Marie Baird, who was very grateful, and I was very grateful to have her contributions that were invaluable, and she still is a driving force contributing in the criminal justice space to this day. So let's, let me try and share the screen here and show you everything is, and then I will begin to read and as well as you'll be able to see where you can find the PDF document for your own use, should you be interested. So let's see here. We're going to go there. And if I can bring this up and bring that down. And so there is this. And let's see here. Uh, and I move this. Yeah. And so here's the article. I've already opened it up. And it, it deals with the availability of treatment and rehabilitation and the critical role of the pre-sentence report. And so as I read this, I will provide some commentary, commentary rather, as from what I've learned over the years. I've been in practice for over 30 years. And as just a brief overview, about 20 years ago, I too had a conviction of a felony. I am very grateful for the support of colleagues, medical school deans, and their support where I was able to get my medical license to practice reinstated back in 2010. And I though, even though with its re, with it being reinstated, I've chosen to take my skills and use them to work with those who are facing the criminal justice system because for me, I found myself being unprepared both in preparation for the pre-sentence interview, for the sentencing hearing, and then I was definitely not prepared for my first day as I entered the, a federal prison. And so it's, impo it's important to be prepared and to understand what you need to do at each of these steps along the way. And as I read this with you today, 
Um, I have another article that I'm writing that will be published. It probably will take about another year, but we'll have added into it the First Step Act and its benefits where you can actually earn your way to a lesser sentence. But let's begin. Prisoners have a constitutional right to adequate medical care, but what that means and how that get and how to get the needed treatment are often not well understood by attorneys representing criminal defendants. This article attempts to address that knowledge deficit by explaining the medical, mental health, and substance abuse programs and policy policies in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, as well as some of the educational, vocational, and other available programs intended to rehabilitate inmates and pre prepare them to return to society. Now, this was done in 2021. Equally impor important, the article explains the cr critical role of the pre-sentence report, PSR, in determining whether and how needed treatment and programs will be available to a defendant. Documentation is paramount, and the diligent attorney must be proactive in gathering and supplying the appropriate documentation to the probation officer preparing the pre-sentence report, or PSR, and to the court, along with a sentencing memorandum advocating for the defendant's desired sentencing outcome and institutional placement, supported by sentencing factors set forth in 18 U.S.C. 3553. <clears throat> the pre-sentence pre report, or PSR, Let's make this a little bit bigger. Plays a plays a critical role in a defendant's post-conviction life. In federal court, the sentencing judge relies on the report to determine the sentencing guidelines, departures, and statutory sentencing considerations under U 18 USS USC 3553. The Bureau of Prisons relies on that same pre-sentence report to make decisions rega regarding custodial placement, security classification, educational, vocational, and medical-psychological treatment needs. Even once a defendant is on supervised release after incarceration, that same pre-sentence report influences the probation officer's release after incarceration the pre-sentence report influences the probation officer's supervision of the defendant and the requirements of that supervision. In short, the pre-sentence report, or PSR, is now part of the defendant's permanent record and is considered the gospel truth about the defendant. It really is, truly, the gift that keep, keeps on giving. And so having it being accurate is key to that to your future. Given the pre-sentence report's permanence and omnipresence, one cannot overstate its importance and need for accuracy. Counts, counsel must be 
must object to inaccurate facts and omissions of important information in the report. Once the court has made final rulings on all objections and before the pre-sentence report is sent to the BOP, counsel must ensure that the report is updated in accordance with the court's rulings. Asking to amend the pre-sentence report later when an inmate is already in the BOP is asking a court to change positions that it has already adopted as, ac as accurate. Even if this can be done, this is a big if. The amendment process can take years and many attorneys' hours to complete, which is very expensive. And so a lot of this, while it's important for your attorney or counsel to make sure it's all accurate, it's also important for you as a defendant. I mean, this is your report. And so all the information that is being collected before the pre-sentence pre interview needs to be supplied and reviewed by you and ensured that is accurate. And then once the pre-sentence report is done, is reviewed with you and your attorney. First and foremost, components of the federal PSR. First and foremost, the pre-sentence report provides details about the offense for which a defendant is being sentenced, whether defendant has accepted responsibility, a very big deal, especially for the judge, who is a one of a no, number of what are considered stakeholders, and stakeholders are individuals who are responsible for deciding your future. They want to make sure that essentially you get rehabilitated and re-enter society not to recidivate and have to wind up back in court again. That they want to understand that you have victims, you have remorse, and that you understand that you are responsible for the crime you have committed. So that you've accepted responsibility for his or her contact, how the sentencing guidelines apply. The report also contains some background information about the defendant that the court may consider in deciding what sentence to impose, including prior criminal history, educational background, work history, family history, and health. Many attorneys simply forget, however, that sentencing is only one purpose of the pre-sentence report. Now, stopping here, as well as, while the pre-sentence report or the probation report, they actually, most of them are similar, but they're not all officially exactly the same if you look at them around the country. But if you can be proactive and create your own personal narrative on your own before the pre-sentence interview, you can actually get all of this information in as your own story so that while the while the department of justice has their narrative their story of you released to the to the to the world that's being read by the judge your colleagues everyone and it's probably not that flattering because it's in the form of your indictment, you can 
re attempt to rewrite that narrative uh, on your own, but that takes time and it takes many, many rewrites to, to begin to address these particular questions and these particular points. But let's continue. The BOP initially relies on the pre-sentence report to determine your security classification, whether to house you in a high-security penitentiary, a medium or low federal correction institution, or a minimum security prison camp. The Bureau of Prisons also determines whether a defendant has a medical or mental health care need that can affect placement, continuity of care, which is a medical term that's used out here in society, but which is also a key phrase that lawyers use so that it's something that you may want to hang on to because this is policy also in the Bureau of Prisons regarding your care or you don't want your care to deviate from standard of care in the community. Continuity of care in the BOP to the extent it will happen depends on an accurate pre-sentence report. The pre-sentence report acts as a medical referral for you, for the client, based on his or her medical and mental health care history, your current medications, and security requirements. The pre-sentence report needs to be as complete as possible to reduce unnecessary lapses in care. This is why it's very important for all this information to have been gathered by you in advance if you have medical health care issues. And if you haven't had any issues and you haven't been to a doctor or you haven't had a mental health care issue and you have never been to a doctor, it's probably time, if you have the time, to get evaluated before the pre-sentence interview because you may have a medical condition that has not been evaluated yet. Finally, the pre-sentence report can, be, can provide information about the defendant's educational, vocational, and avocational interest, which can facilitate placement in a facility appropriate with appropriate programs to enhance rehabilitation and successful return to society. This is important. Again, this was done in 2021. The First Step Act has these programs. And as long as your attorney is familiar with all of the First Step Act programming, then this is a big deal. But there are a lot. And you can go to First Step Act programs on the website that I have, and you can see each one of them that's available. By knowing what programs and treatments the BOP provides, an attorney can better assist the client in making sure that the pre-sentence report has appropriate documentation to improve the chances of a client placement into the appropriate location. Healthcare in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. A defendant has a constitutional right to adequate health care. This means that prisons must provide necessary medical attention and may not act with deliberate indifference to a prisoner's pain and suffering. The BOP attempts to meet its constitutional obligation 
efficiently and cost-effectively by having immense placed at different facilities based on level of medical care needed. All BOP facilities have staff members who are trained as first responders to use the automatic external fibrillators and to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation in emergency situations. When an inmate first enters the Federal Bureau of Prison System, before you even get there, people that you've never met at the Designation and Sentence Computation Center, they're going to determine the defendant's information, including your criminal history. They're going to evaluate it, your offense and sentence and medical documents and treatment history from your pre-sentence report inputted into what they call Sentry, which is their software to determine both security classification and medical care level designation for that inmate. Designations range from care level one, which is going to be for the healthiest inmates, to care level four, which is the equivalent of a hospital level care for grave, for gravely ill inmates needing inpatient care, which is essentially those needing 24-7, 365 nursing care. An institutional designation is then determined based on the medical care level and security classification level. Don't just say that you want to go to a care level four, which is a federal medical center, which is 24-7, 365 nursing care, because they house people of all security levels, both violent and nonviolent. So it's not a walk in the park if you don't have to be there. Final placements decisions for those inmates with significant health conditions and concerns are made by the Office of Medical Designation and Transportation at the BOP. Getting into specifics, care levels of the BOP, care level one. This is going to be comparable to a general practice physician that one rarely visits, or you visit for the occasional minor illness or injury. This is going to be for inmates who are less than 70 years old with limited medical needs. They have a stable medical, mental, and physical health. Typically need physicians no more than once every six months. Any mental health crisis would be of short duration and would not require hospitalizations. Examples of limited medical needs assigned to care level one will include mild asthma, diet-controlled diabetes, stable HIV, or AIDS for which medications are not needed. A community hospital is usually approximately one hour away from a care level one institution. And then you can see here, I have a table to the right, right here for of BOP care level one facilities and their group by security level. Most federal prison facilities are designated next to be care level two because care level at this level is the majority of people, both in society at large, as well as for people within the BOP. And these are going to be your, like your normally fully staffed internal medicine practice. Inmates are designated to a care level two. We'll have chronic illnesses that require, or may require 
uh, medication, but their health is generally stable. Hospitalizations are usually not required. Inmates at this level may have a mental health diagnosis requiring routine outpatient care, but all mental health concerns are controlled with medication or talk therapy. Medical or psychological patient care visits may be available monthly to quarterly. Care level two facilities are within, are within one hour of a regional hospital center, but the need for hospitalization for such an inmate would not be expected more than every two years. And again, we have a table on, there's table two that we'll see on the next page. Care level three. Care level three facilities are located near major community medical facilities to ensure outside necessary medical care is within close proximity to the designated institution. Care level three inmates include those needing companions to help with their activities of daily living, but not needing daily nursing supervision, which means they don't need nursing care 24-7, 365, and those needing daily to monthly medical or psychiatric visits. Other care level three inmates, including those suffering from cancer and remission, less than one year, advanced HIV or AIDS, severe mental illness and remission on medication, congestive heart failure, and end-stage liver disease. These inmates may have chronic or recurring mental illnesses or ongoing cognitive impairments. Daily inpatient nursing care is not available, but inmates at this level may require hospitalization periodically to stabilize their medical or mental health care condition enough to keep them from deteriorating to the point requiring round-the-clock nursing. And again, their care level three to facilities are grouped by security classification. Now we're going to go on to care level four. These are known as medical centers for federal prisoners or federal medical centers. They operate like small hospitals and provide varying degrees of nursing and medical care, including surgical, diagnostic, and therapeutic services. They are the only BOP or Federal Bureau of Prison facilities able to provide this type of care level four inmate around with the around-the-clock nursing care needed. For, let's get through here where you see all the different facilities in these tables. For the medical or chronic mental health condition resulting in severe physical or chronic impairments. Physical impairments designated to this level include end-state kidney failure requiring dialysis, unremitting cancer, quadriplegic stroke, debilitating neurological trauma, major surgery or high-risk pre pregnancy, and recent transplant recipients within one year. Mental health diagnosis is so severe that an inmate cannot function in general population may be designated to a mental health unit within one year of the prison medical facilities. Care level four facilities accommodate inmates of every security level which makes the safety of nonviolent offender an issue to be raised. And again, 
You can see the table tables here, and they're available on the website with links to this, as I showed you earlier, to this to this specific article. Scope of services covered. Here's where it gets tricky. The federal prison healthcare is implemented through a mix of Bureau of Prison employees and public health care service officers. Primary responsibilities fall on primary care provider team, which provides medical care to inmate patients under a medical or clinical director's supervision. This is the BOP's equivalent of a staff medical practice. Working under staff physicians, psychiatrists at selected facilities, mid-level practitioners, including registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, licensed vocational nurses, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants, and certified nursing assistants. These staffers are in turn supported by general laboratory technicians, like x-ray technicians, phlebotomists, as well as not yet licensed foreign medical school graduates. EMTs are also here acting as mid-level practitioners. Additionally, all facilities have a dentist and may have contract with orthopedics, neurologists, optometrists, and other specialists from local communities who come to the prison for on-site medical visits. Mid-level practitioners are the inmates are the inmate patient's primary point of contact. They serve as the primary care providers for routine requests, new patient evaluations, ongoing management of recurring conditions and emergencies. The BOP sorts medical treatments into five categories, which can be objectively be called life-threatening, medically necessary, medically necessary but not urgent, medically appropriate but not necessary, and extraordinary. So here we go, and this gets into the detail. Treatment. Life-threatening. Treatment for life-threatening conditions is essential to sustain life or function of, critically, of critical bodily system and requires immediately attention. The BOP refers to these conditions as medically necessary, acute, or emergent, and includes the following conditions in this category, heart attacks, severe trauma, such as the head injury, hemorrhage, stroke, detached retina, sudden loss of vision, complications of pregnancy and labor. So I'm going to interrupt here for a second. We've all, I don't know if everyone, but it's been in the news multiple times over the last number of years that where the BOP has been identified, not at all locations, but at some, where some patients have, or some inmate patients have just been left, I don't want to say unattended, but where care could have been provided, it, it wasn't expedited quick enough or potentially compassionate release wasn't expedited or wasn't chosen or was denied. And so unfortunately in the federal system, 
your administrative remedy process relies on the inmate patient or the on the individual to start the administrative process. But this process can take months, six months, and the but the inmate patient just may not have the physical strength to go through the process or may not have the time to last through the process. And so this is where having a, a point of contact or a person on the outside to begin to advocate where you cannot advocate for yourself. And so these are points that I try and adapt or I try and make on other YouTubes and through the website. But it's at, at this point, the Bureau of Prison relies solely on the individual to use the administrative remedy process. But unfortunately, in medical conditions, you're really not health-wise able to self-advocate for yourself. It's just not physically, you're not able to do this. But continuing, as I digress, medically necessary. The BOV defines this category to include conditions that are not immediately life-threatening, but with which out without treatment now the inmate could not be could not be maintained without significant risk of serious deterioration leading to premature death, significant reduction in the possibility of repair later without present treatment. Ugh, my words. Significant pain or discomfort that impairs the inmate's participation in activities of daily living. Going up the other side. Examples of conditions that the BOP considers here are chronic conditions such as high blood pressure, cholesterol, heart disease, diabetes, severe mental health issues, bipolar, schizophrenia, infectious disorders, HIV, tuberculosis, and cancer. I don't see anywhere here where it's degenerative joint disease, hip, knee. Maybe we'll hit that here in medically necessary, not urgent. The BOP actually defines this category as medically acceptable, not always necessary. This group includes conditions for which Treatment may improve the inmate's quality of life. Example of treatments for this conditions in this category as listed in the BOP policy for patient care include joint replacements, <coughs> reconstruction of the anterior cruciate ligament of the knee, and treatment of non-cancerous skin lesions. Such as such treatments. Such treatment procedures require review and approval by the Institution's Utilization Review Committee, which considers certain risk factors, including risk and benefits of the treatment available, resources including costs, security, staffing, and transportation, inmate patient's medical history, and how intervention, lack thereof, will impact the inmate's activities of daily living. Here, 
the next part pay attention to. Should an Altide specialist consult be needed for a non-emergent condition, a referral request is made to the prison's utilization and review committee and clinical director. Other members involved in this decision-making process include the associate warden or warden, health service administrator assistant, the medical trip coordinator, and any healthcare providers directly involved in the referral, perhaps the director of nursing and the chaplain. The, the clinical director has the final say over all utilization review committee decisions. If approved, the inmate patient will be placed on a schedule or waitlisted wait until the specialist has an opening during the contract's limited monthly hours, which may be several months or years later. Notably, the clinical director is under no obligation to follow the medical recommendations made by the outside physician's consultant specialist. If the recommendations are not followed, the clinical director will document his or her justification in the inmate's health care record. Justification may be based on the category of care saw. Something to think about before you go in and have your physicians, if in fact this is applies to you, address before the pre-sentence interview. Number four, medically appropriate. Some treatments, even though recommended by a healthcare provider and deemed appropriate by the clinical director, still require approval by the Utilization and Review Committee, which is not likely to be granted. These treatments are considered by the Federal Bureau of Prisons to have limited medical value and include cosmetic procedures and remo removal of non-cancerous lesions. It is worth noting that some lesions may be misdiagnosis, so the denial of treatment for these appropriate medical procedures should be of concern for inmates having, the, having such health and healthcare needs. Again, should this should you fall into this particular category, your physician and attorney needs to note this so that it makes it into your pre-sentence report. Otherwise, if you have a what appears to be a skin lesion, they're going to say, no, we're not going to biopsy it. And so if you have a history of a skin lesion that's cancerous, that needs to be very clearly written because that's going to, having that, having that treated or biopsied and removed on the outside is considered standard of care in the community. Having that same, having that same lesion biopsied and removed in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, if they refuse to do that, is going against standard of care in the community. And that needs to be noted. And continuing, extraordinary treatment. The Bureau of Prison considers medical treatment extraordinary if it affects the life of another individual, such as organ transplantation, 
Thus, organ transplants and experimental investigative treatments require approval of the Utilization Review Committee, which is not likely to be granted. So here, I guess they're not going to let you do a get an organ for a transplant. I don't know if a relative and you're a match for someone else to have a get one of your organs, if they will let that happen. That type of uh, donating an organ where you would be the only left available provider of an organ is something that they would let you do. But I would think if it's brought up to the BOP and they say no, and then it's brought up to the warden and they say no, and then it's brought up to the senator of that particular region and then the public, they may acquiesce and say yes. Medical devices and pharmaceuticals. If an incarcerated inmate needs medical devices, glasses, prosthetics, or other medical support or items, they can be medically mailed. They can be mailed directly from his or her personal physician's office or medical business. Example: Provision with the attached physician orders orders using the form BP. And I have this, you can find this right in my, in the website, in the appropriate area where you can print the form up, but it needs to come from the BOP. Also, you should have all of those, all of those items already written into the pre-sentence report so that, so that there really is no question. And if they're self-surrendering, come in with them. And if you're coming in with this prescription eyeglasses, come in with a couple pairs with the prescriptions and have them not be made of steel or metal. These items cannot be mailed by family members or friends or non-medical physicians. Prescription eyeglasses, medical devices, such as a CPAP, which I brought in with me, or BiPAP or other machines for sleep apnea, prosthetics, or similar devices can be brought with the patient along with the prescriptions for drugs or the medical devices. The pre-sentence report should also mention that the defendant has these devices per medical orders and copy of all those doctor records are in the pre-sentence report. If the client does not take these devices with him or her when reporting, they may have to wait weeks or longer for the BOP to be able to get these devices. That's not a good thing. The inmate's family will not be allowed to mail them indirectly. They must come directly from either the physician's office or a or healthcare distributor. If the inmate regularly takes prescription medication, the, the Bureau of Prisons, you will usually substitute your med, uh, generic medications for brand name drugs. Not only does the BOP policy, policy generally require generic medications, the BOP's medical personnel, pharmacists, and consulting physicians are required to use the least expensive generic equivalent where available. Thus, instead of generic equivalents, the BOP may prescribe an alternative but less expensive generic medication that is for the treatment of the same condition. Much like insurance companies, 
the BOP has a formulary of approved medications. The formulary includes the, the generic name of the medication, what condition it's prescribed for, acceptable dose levels, and limits on the number of days the medication can be prescribed. Use of any medication that is not on the formulary or use of a medication in a different manner for a treatment of a different condition than the author than authorized by the formulary or longer than the authorization than authorized requires pre pre-approval from the BOP medical director after going through the institution's clinical director and the Bureau of Prisons Regional Medical Director, which is an extensive and lengthy process. Essentially, all the med Bureau of Prisons medication formula is online. They have drugs that are available, which are considered on formulary. They have drugs that are considered non-formulary, which they have them. They just don't want to give them to you. And then there are drugs that are just not available. And all the medications you have, you need to be able to go, go through the online procedure and just see what they have. And then with your attorney and then with your physician, see if they're available. And if your doctor then can find other medications, if they're not, if they have other drugs that your doctor can feel will be appropriate. And if there are other, other medications that are appropriate, then the doctor needs to give you prescriptions, new prescriptions, and have those doctor's orders from your chart, as well as the actual physical prescription put into your record. If they're not available, then you need to have request that your that your physician and attorney get together and come up with a plan. A part of that plan is having your doctor write up why that the drugs are that the drugs that are available either have been tried by this physician and did not were not did not work or their efficacy was not did not result in a that this did not work for you or why this the particular drugs were, were not appropriate for you and then have that physician if they're willing appear at your sentencing hearing because the drug or rather the judge is going to want to talk to the uh to your physician and that needs to be entered into the record that part is very important Some formulary drugs are available in only limited circumstances, such as the preferred medication's failure to work for the patient, but only after a lengthy pre-approval process. Some medications, such as opiate narcotics, are only available at care level four facilities for limited circumstances. Those medications and some psychiatric medications must be crushed by the healthcare provider and administered to the patient in the provider's presence. This is to prevent diversion of the medication by inmates for unlawful purposes. Prescribing a medication without pre-approval is considered unauthorized use of government funds and is a felony offense. In short, medications 
the patient inmate receives in custody will not necessarily match the medications that the inmate received before incarceration. Even if the inmate is lucky enough to be taking the same medication as before, there's a variety of manufacturers that will produce the same generic drug and it will differ in size, shape, and color that you, so that you may think it's a different drug or different than you've been used to. To, invo- to avoid unnecessary anxiety, essentially letting your, letting your client know that if after all the due diligence, if the drugs that the Bureau of Prison has is the same drug that your, current, your client's currently taking, just let them know that a lot of manufacturers that, pr- that produce the same medication, the same formula, but because they're different companies, they make it in different color, different size, different shape, but it's the same drug. So they don't get surprised when they show up at the farm at the BOP or the federal the Bureau of Prison, their pharmacy. If the if the client's on a non-formulary medication, the attorney needs to assist the client in attaining pre-approval before arrival at the facility. And this is going to take a substantial amount of time in order to prevent unnecessary and potentially un a harmful interruption, an extended interruption of time of the client's medical treatment. You don't want, if it's, if the medication is on non, is a non-formulary drug and the physician has noted that it's the only drug that they have that's available, then with the physician, if they're willing to show up in court the judge needs to note that, and then the attorney needs to address, excuse me, the physician needs to address why the drugs that are available are not appropriate. Because what's going to happen is that once the client arrives in prison, they're going to say, well, let's try the other drugs we have first. And that's just going to make the new inmate patient or the, the defendant nervous. And so there's no reason for that to happen. If a client is self-surrendering to the BOP, he or she should bring, try and bring a three or four week supply of medications in properly labeled bottles. These prescriptions may ultimately be returned or thrown out, returned to your client's home or thrown out, but at least they could be made available for continuity of care purposes Let's say you show up on a weekend or holiday. So they may, you know, they or the or the medication that you're on is not in stock. So they may let you use them. Programming in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. In the last century, American society has transitioned from an institutionalizing people with mental health conditions and from institutionalized people with mental health conditions and Mental health facilities often underfunded and operating under poor condition to incarcerating the mentally ill in jails and prisons. Nearly 50% of of jailed inmates and over one-third of prison inmates suffer from a mental health problem. Mental illness often underlies behavior problems, and if an incarcerated inmate has not been properly diagnosed, or given treatment for a mental illness, chances are high that the inmate will be involved in fights, assaults, or self-injurious behavior or other misconduct 
in prison that leads to disciplinary consequences, including restrictive housing units, use of restrictive housing units, especially self-confinement, which exacerbates mental illness rather than helping the inmate. Therefore, it's imperative that the defense attorney makes sure that the psychiatric and psychological issues, issues are identified and included in the defendant's pre-sentence report, along with the appropriate treatment plan recommended by the current qualified psychiatric health care provider. If mental health issues are apparent, but the defendant has no documentation of diagnosis or treatment, the attorney can obtain a professional psychological evaluation before the probation officer begins preparing the pre-sentence interview and then the official pre-sentence report. Failure to do so will co-sign co co the defendant. Give me a minute. The defendant to increase risk of restrictive housing or solitary confinement. When requesting placement in a specific facility or program, defense counsel should ask the court not only to recommend placement, but to include the reasons for this recommendation, which will improve the chances for securing the placement. One additional measure to possibly increase the chance of the BOP following the recommendations of the court is to ask the sentencing judge in, to order the BOP to provide in writing the reason for not following the judicial recommendation. Documentation of known mental health issues in treatment, including substance abuse and addiction, is essential for, for continuity of care. Without documenting the diagnosis and need for specific medication in the pre-sentence report, for example, an inmate entering the BOP will have no access to medication. In that case, there will be a waiting period, sometimes several weeks, before an inmate will be seen and evaluated and prescribed the medication deemed suitable by, by the prison medical establishment. During the delay, without any medication, the inmate's condition is likely to deteriorate. This is important. In addition, when providing the substance abuse history, it is imperative that the pre-sentence report document frequency and current substance use activity. Upon initial remand or voluntary surrender to the assigned prison, the defendant may require placement in an institution that is equipped to provide a safe detox environment. If the BOP is unaware from documented medical records in the pre-sentence report that some medications have been unsuccessful, the patient inmate may be doomed to another trial period of medication already known to be ineffective for him or her. Beyond access to basic mental health care and medication document documentation of known mental health and related conditions, is necessary for inmates to be eligible to participate in some programs. The BOP offers a variety of programs to provide mental health support, substance abuse education and treatment, continuing education, and vocational training. Other programs help inmates adjust to prison life, develop coping skills, <clears throat> or heal from past trauma that may have contributed have a contributing role in an inmate's criminal conduct 
However, some of the programs have very limited capacity and are offered in only certain in certain facilities. If a defendant's need and desire for a particular program are made clear in the pre-sentence report or his or her chances for placing at a facility offering a program will be improved. <clears throat> Addressing program needs with the assigned assistant U.S. attorney before sentencing and obtaining the government's agreement to recommend the placement will also improve the defendant's chances, and these programs will be discussed in this next section. Programs promoting psychological well-being, mental health treatment programs. The BOP has a series of residential mental health treatment programs to treat inmates diag diagnosed with serious mental illness and behavior disorders, particularly for inmates who do not require hospitalization, but nonetheless need intensive treatment services and or lack the ability to function in general popula population settings. <clears throat> this part is going to be updated with, as I said, the next article that I am in the process of writing. So I don't want to say that is old news, but these programs have been expanded. So with that, let's continue. <clears throat> and we are making progress. And I definitely thank you for staying with me. So <clears throat> these programs include habitation program, skills program, access to program, mental health step-down units. The habitation program is for high security inmates who lack the ability to adapt to penitentiary environments because of mental illness or may be able to function in a medium security environment with proper residential treatment. Skills program. The skills program is for inmates with both mental illness and cognitive intellectual limitations that limit their ability to adapt to living in a community, in the community and in prison. These programs are currently available at FCI Danbury Low and Coleman Medium. Has evolved into a residential program and now has emphasis on addressing needs of offenders who are deemed to be on the autism spectrum. It's a 12-day month program assists inmates and assists in providing inmates on the autism spectrum with coping mechanisms and tools to be able to manage better once released from the program and assigned to general population. Access to program is for inmates with borderline personality disorder or other severe personality disorders who have a history of behavioral problems in the prison, but are amiable to treatment. More recently, this program has been called STAGES. Program Steps Towards Awareness, Growth, and Emotional emotional Strength. The program is designed to increase time between disruptive disorders, foster living within general population and community settings, and increase pro-social skills. It's available at 
Federal, Federal Medical Center, Rochester, USP, Penitentiary of Florence, and FCI, Terrence, Terre Haute. Mental health step-down unit is provided intensive treatment for inmates recently released from inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. Sometimes inmates are placed in these units in an effort to avoid the need for inpatient hospitalization. Acceptance into any of the mental health treatment programs requires a diagnosis of mental illness or behavioral disorder and a demonstrated need for intensive treatment demonstrated by prior hospitalizations, interventions, complex treatment with psychotropic medication, major functional impairment, or repeated incidents of severe behavioral problems in prisons. Inmates in a residential treatment program reside together on a unit with their living areas being separate from the general population, allowing the inmates to create a therapeutic community environment. Most of their other activities, recreation, work assignment, and meals are shared with the general population inmates assigned to that particular facility. This placement also helps to protect mental ill inmates from injuring themselves, from being victimized, and from being negatively influenced by peers in the general population. Inmates in these residential programs are still subject to being victimized. However, the potential for victimizations is reduced. Unfortunately, the BOP has a limited capacity and lengthy waiting list for placing inmates in these programs, which is why I recommend addressing this into the pre-sentence report. With such a limited capacity, <clears throat> the need for thorough documentation of prior mental health history in the pre-sentence report is readily imperative. Without documenting the need for special placement, an inmate will be placed in the general population with greatly increased chances of restrictive housing, isolation, and other counterproductive sanctions rather than treatment. The RESOLVE program. The RESOLVE program is a cognitive behavior program designed to address trauma-related mental health care needs of inmates. Specifically, the program works with those who have previously been, been, been victims of a child abuse or neglect, sexual assault, domestic, domestic violence, or other trauma known to correlate with psychological disorders. Starting with an eight-hour workshop, these programs are followed by six months of non-residential treatment and seeks to decrease the incidence of trauma related to pathology and improve inmates' level of functioning. Since 2007, the RESOLVE program has been implemented at all BOP facilities housing women, except during times that the institution lacks a psychologist to lead the program. The program is available for men at the Maximum Security Prison in Florence, Colorado, FCI Danbury Low in Connecticut. The CHALLENGE program. <clears throat> The CHALLENGE program is a residential cognitive behavioral treatment program for male inmates in penitentiary settings. 
The challenge program lasts at least nine months, provides three phases of treatment to high-security inmates with substance abuse problems and mental illness. Like mental health treatment programs, participants live together on a unit separate from the general population. Incentives and rewards are available for successful completion of phases of the program. The program is available on several BOP facilities, but not at all of them. You could find that through the website if you Google all the challenge program. I have it there. Substance abuse programs. The BOP offers different options for those inmates dealing with substance abuse issues, issues ranging from education into intensive treatment. Drug abuse education. Drug abuse education includes a series of classes providing education about substance abuse and its unwanted side effects. The classes may help identify offenders who need more than education. Any, ineligible, any inmate is eligible to participate in drug abuse education classes as long as he or she is not already enrolled in or has not already completed the residential drug abuse treatment program and has, has enough time remaining in custody to complete the course. The course is available at all BOP locations. Non-residential drug abuse treatment. The non-residential drug abuse treatment program is a 12-week cognitive behavioral treatment program, usually conducted in group therapy sessions. The program addresses the link between substance abuse and criminal lifestyles and provides opportunities for building and improving skills in rational thinking, communication, and community adjustment. The program is intended for treatment with relatively short sentences, those transitioning to the community, those who have failed a urinalysis drug screen, and for addicts in need of substantial treatment who are on the waiting list for RDAP, intensive treatment program, or who are not eligible for RDAP, all BOP institutions have this program. Three, the Residential Drug Abuse Program, also known as RDAP. RDAP is an intensive residential drug treatment program followed by transitional treatment in the community following release. Inmates in the program live in a prison housing unit separate from the general population in a modified therapeutic community setting. They spend half of each weekday in treatment, including individual and group counseling, and the other half of each day is spent in school, work, or vocational training. This portion of RDAP must last at least six months. The usual length of time of the residential portion of the treatment is approximately 10 months. To be eligible for RDAP, the inmate must have a verifiable substance use disorder that was active within one year of the offense for which he or she is incarcerated. This means for eligibility, the offender must have been actively using substances within one year from the date of arrest. For this reason, it is critical for the pre-sentence report 
to document active substance abuse for any prior efforts at treatment and any prior units efforts at treatment. Details of where and when treatment in the community was obtained should also be documented in the pre-sentence report for easy reference. A defendant who denies having a substance abuse problem during his or her pre-sentence interview will have a much harder time establishing eligibility for the program later. So don't deny it. If you have a problem, it's not going to be held against you. An inmate must also sign an agreement to comply with program responsibilities and requirements. Finally, the inmate must have a sufficient remaining time on his or her sentence to complete the full program or admission to the program will be denied. The RDAP program is widely sought because studies have demonstrated its effectiveness in preventing relapse to drug use and in reducing criminal recidivism. The program is also popular because inmates who successfully complete the program can reduce the length of their prison sentences by 10% up to a maximum of one year. Because the program's popularity, there is a waiting list to get into RDAP, and not all who need the program can get it. There are also eligibility requirements for early release, such that not every participant in the program will receive the benefit of early release under 18 U.S.C. 3621E. Those ineligible for early release include legal aliens, pretrial detainees, military inmates, or, st or State inmates serving state inmates serving time in a BOP facility, inmates who previously completed the program and got an early release for the first time, inmates serving their first sentence for any for any violent felony, sex offense involving a minor, or any attempt solicitation or conspiracy to commit such a violent felony or sex offense and in, inmates with a detainer and inmates with a previous conviction within 10 years of the sentence of a current offense for a homicide, rape, robbery, aggravated arson, assault, arson, kidnapping, or sexual abuse of a minor. Sex offender programs. The BOP offers sex offender treatment programs for inmates serving criminal sentences and for those who have been civilly committed as predatory sex offenders suffering from mental illness that renders them a danger to the community. Non-residential sex offender treatment program. The non-residential offender program consists of outpatient groups meeting two to three times per week for a total of six to eight hours per week. Completion of this moderate intensive program takes approximately nine months. Partic participants learn basic skills and concepts to help them understand their past offenses and to reduce the risk of future offending. Eligibility for this program is limited to offenders who have been evaluated and found to have a low to monitor moderate risk of reoffending. Attorneys should advise clients that the BOP uses this program to identify persons likely to reoffend. 
and therefore participation carries risks. However, failure to participate, if recommended by the POP, can loss can result in loss of good time credit. The non-residential sex offender treatment program is available at FCI Elton, Englewood, Mariana, Petersburg, Seganville, USP Marion, USP Tucson, for male offenders, and Federal Federal Medical Center Carswell for females. Residential Sex Offender Treatment Program. The Residential Sex Offender Treatment Program involves high-intensity programming for a period of 12 to 18 months. The BOP provides this program at Federal Medical Center in Devon in Massachusetts. Participants benefit from therapeutic community on a residential housing unit where they work to reduce the risk of future offending. Offenders receive treatment five days a week. The program is targeted targeted at offenders with an elevated risk of reoffending. Butner has a new program. Butner's new program is the Commitment and Treatment Program for Sexually Dangerous Persons in lieu of the Residential Sex Offender Program. A little information was available at the time. Involuntary civil commitment inmates who have served their sentences but are deemed high risk of reoffending because of severe mental illness can be involuntarily committed to the custody of the attorney general for continued for confinement for continued confinement and treatment. Some defense attorneys may advise their clients not to participate in send in sex offender treatment pro- programs because information disclosed in treatment has sometimes been the basis for seeking an order for civil commitment. Policy and programs for for pregnant inmates. Female inmates are medically screened for pregnancy upon admission to the BOP, and they are instructed to inform medical staff immediately if they suspect they're pregnant pregnant. The BOP provides female inmates with medical and social services related to pregnancy, birth control, and child placement, as well as to access abortion. If necessary, childbirth takes place at a hospital outside the institution. Previously, an inmate could be handcuffed during delivery, but a provision of the First Step Act now prohibits such restraints except in limited circumstances. Outside social service agencies are contracted to help the inmate find an appropriate placement for a baby. Newborns are not allowed to return to the prison with their mothers, but they can accompany they can accompany an adult visitor to the prison for visitation in accordance with prison visitation policies. Attorneys representing a client who is pregnant or has a young child need to be aware of two special situations the BOP discussed below. Abortion. Federal law, popularly known as the Hyde Amendment, prohibits the use of federal funds to to perform or facilitate abortions, except where the mother's life is endangered 
or in cases of rape or incest. This law applies to and is followed by the BOP. Pursuant to 28 CFR 551.23, the pregnant inmate receives medical, religious, and social counseling about her pregnancy decision. If she decides to have an abortion, arrangements are made where the medical services to be provided at an abortion clinic outside the institution at the inmate's expense or her family's. Even though not paying for the abortion procedure, the BOP may pay to escort the inmate to the procedure. Under BOP policy, BOP employees may decline to participate in the provision of abortion counseling or services, including transportation. The MID program. Mothers and Infants Nursing Together is an alternative residential program for low-risk female inmates, inmates who are pregnant when they arrive in prison. Eligible female inmates can enter the program two months before their delivery due date, and they can re remain in the, bio in the program for three months after the baby is born. The program's purpose is to promote parent-child bonding and to improve parenting skills for the new mother. The program is administered through the Community Correction Center and Residential Reentry Centers, and the inmate must qualify to participate. A woman, a woman with more than five years to serve who gets pregnant while incarcerated or who plans to place a child for adoption is not eligible for the program, nor are sex offenders, deportable non-citizens, those with pending charges or a history of violence, or those requiring psychiatric hospitalization. Another requirement is that the mother may be able to provide, must be able to provide financial support for herself and her child so that the BOP does not have to pay, but she may seek help from social services. Prior to the child's birth, the mother must make custodial arrangements for the child because after the three-month bonding period, she must return to her original prison to finish her sentence. <clears throat> the community correction centers or the RRC residential reentry center provides psychological counseling, drug counseling, and parenting classes. One for one facility though differs from other the other federal mid, mid programs, and that's Greenbriars. Birthing Center, overseen by the Baltimore Reentry Baltimore Residential Reentry Office, which operates under contract with the BOP. Here, a female may remain at Greenbar up to 12 months with her child after both. Located in the Hills Hillborough, Hill, West Virginia, the program seeks to provide a home-like environment to promote bonding and parenting skills. The facility has 20 private bedrooms with every two rooms sharing a bathroom. The common area has a kitchen, recreation room, education room, physical training area, laundry facilities, and a phone room. The Greenbrier also offers more programming than the minimum required by the BOP. In addition to parenting classes, psychological counseling, and substance abuse counseling, and weekly screening, Greenbrier provides life skill classes, financial management, job readiness, and GED classy, classes 
as well as testing on site, all of which are intended to motivate, motivate and help the mother provide a stable environment for the child upon her release from custody. The BRAVE program. The BRAVE program or the Bureau of Rehabilitation and Values Enhancement is for young male offenders serving their first federal sentence. To qualify for the program, the inmate must be male, 32 years of age or younger, with a sentence of five years or longer, and a federal incarcerated for the first time. The program utilizes cognitive, behavioral, approach to promote favorable institution adjustment, positive interaction with staff members, and self-improvement activities. During the six months residential program, inmates live together in a unit complex, completing an orientation phase, core treatment phase, and transition phase. The program is offered at FCI Buckley and FCI Victorville Medium. Educational programs. With the rollout of the First Step Act, there are many more programs that are available. The Adult Literacy Program leading to completion of a GED is available at each BOP location. Inmates without a verified high school diploma or GED certificate who have the capacity to obtain one are expected to work towards completion of this program while incarcerated. The warden at each facility is also is also to ensure the availability of an English as a second language program for non-English speaking inmates who score below the eighth grade proficiency in reading and listening comprehension in English. The BOP program statement on English notes the goal of providing post-secondary education opportunities and old adult continuing education classes for inmates, individual classes in typing, computer literacy, and parenting are parenting are available as continuing education courses. But the reality is that reduced funding and prison prisoner ineligibility for PELP grants, which has now changed. Uh, with the Second Chance Act that President Biden was able to usher in, there are Pell Grants now, has limited the availability of some of the post-secondary education for many inmates. That, this has all changed. Some BOP facilities have access to community college programs in which professors come to the facility to teach classes, and some have correspondent school options available to inmates. The attorney for a defendant who hopes to obtain some collegiate education should check the handbook for facilities where the client is likely to be placed to determine what advanced programs, if any, are available. Vocational training programs. The BOP endeavors to provide vocational education opportunities for inmates with limited employment history and few marketable skills. Vocational training is available in the form of apprenticeship programs, certificate programs, and on-the-job on training in various fields, popular, popular apprenticeship programs, including HVAC, electrical, and welding. The same programs are not available at every facility. However, 
and an attorney should determine which facilities offer which programs that the attorney that the individual client wishes to learn. Conclusion. And he can note that as far as in the sentencing memorandum, if in fact you're willing or you're in a position to make a BOP placement request. Conclusion, a defendant's legal team must determine what medical and non-medical information is needed to be included or not included in the client's pre-sentence report. The goal is to request a client's placement in a facility appropriate to his or her security classification, but also taking into consideration the individual's medical and psychological and educational programming needs of the defendant. Accuracy and documentation of information from the beginning of the of representation is key to accomplishing this goal. Further, it is advisable for the legal team to call the classification center in Grand Prix or speak with staff at the Pacific facilities to verify that the desired programs are still available at that facility. Individual facilities sometimes supplement BOP practices based on local needs and resources without public notification, particularly if the defendant may be placed into a private contract facility. The attorney needs to learn about the programs, medical resources, and mental health care available at that specifically type facility and the requirements for eligibility. Most low-security, non-U.S. citizens are placed in one of the BOP's contract for-profit prisons. Only by knowing your client's needs and obtaining the appropriate documentation for the pre-sentence report can the defense attorney give a defendant the best shot at receiving the appropriate treatment and programming while incarcerated. I realize this has been long, and I appreciate you taking the time to bear through this lengthy article. I hope you have found this helpful. What I'm hoping to do as a follow-up to this is stress the need for what the attorneys understand all of the legal information that you need to have prepared for you as you prepare for the pre-sentence interview and the sentencing memorandum. They may not all understand what's needed for the Federal Bureau of Prisons and all of your stakeholders. And the stakeholders are going to be the judge, your, the probation officer, your attorney, the, uh, the, your case management, the your your case manager, the unit team. Once you're in prison, the case manager is in prison. The unit team's in prison. The residential reentry manager is going to be the person in the halfway house. How all this plays together is that, in order to take advantage of all of the hard work that your attorneys have done, is to have drafted a a great narrative, your story, because right now the only narrative out there is the one that the Department of Justice has written, which is your indictment. And 
it that's been read by the judge, the probation officer, your colleagues, and your family and friends. And so your narrative has to put, you know, a different light on what has happened through your story. Then your reentry plan, you, while it's a little premature in your eyes, because I understand that I've been where you are, but your reentry plan is important because it, although it starts now, uh, and it, there won't be a lot there, and I go through this in other YouTubes and through the website, you need this started now because your judge at sentencing is want to know your plan because they don't want to see you back in your in their courtroom. They want to know that you're responsible, you know, you accept responsibility. They want to know you have a plan to not reoffend, that you have a plan to maybe make things right. And so there's a lot of information that goes into all of this, and that's what I'm going to address going for into another article that I am, you know, working on at this point. I thank you for taking the time to listen to all of this and I hope you have a good day.